Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 48th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading platforms for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is predictive coding for rookies. As it happens, Sharon and I taught this course on this very subject this morning for law students at Richmond University. So this time we're flying solo, and Sharon and I are tackling the subject by ourselves. <laughs> and, and we are assuming that those who are listening are primarily rookies. I do know some people will probably listen to this, even if they know a lot more. So forgive us if we keep this on the down low, but we want to make sure we're not talking over people's heads. So as, as we did this morning, we kind of started off with talking about how it happened in the paper world and how you'd get a request for the production of documents. And you would do the same sort of thing you actually do today in the electronic world. You know, you knew something about from the pleadings, you knew something about the subject matter, you talked to the key players, and then you'd start collecting box after box after box after box of paper. Especially in a big case, you might end up with all this paper in a warehouse, and you'd have all your document reviewers, usually uh, lawyers, of course, and, and they'd all be there, and they would have an endless supply of really bad coffee, stale sandwiches, and depending upon the uh, size of the case, they might be there for for a matter of months. Uh, it was truly a, a terrible thing. So people really hated doing all of that. And it did get a little bit better when we moved to the electronic discovery world, but not that much because you still had document reviewers who were chained to their machines and doing document review in the electronic world. We, we have had some, uh, some change that has been to the positive, particularly the change in the Federal Rule of Evidence 502. Uh, we, we've always had a problem with inadvertently produced privileged documents. That's been a big issue along the way. And we had a not very good rule. Now we have a better rule. And the new 502D, Judge Peck has said there's nothing bad about this rule. He is a terrific fan of it. He says it now authorizes district courts to enter into discovery orders, protecting parties from waiver consequences normally attached to sharing privileged materials. And he calls it a get out of jail free card. Um, and so it is a, a big improvement improvement. So at least that's something we don't have to worry about. But to return to the matter at hand, the more you have to review, the more expensive it is. And in 2012, the Rand Corporation calculated in a study that it takes $18,000 to review one gigabyte of data. And of course, now we're dealing with terabytes on a regular basis. So to kind of bring us up to speed on where we are today, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about keyword searches and conceptual searches, which is was as far as we had gotten until predictive coding. Well, yeah, that was sort of the, the early days. Uh, you know, folks were real comfortable with, with just words. Let's do a search and find car. Let's do a search and find uh, pharmaceutical or whatever it was. They used, they used a term to go, hopefully a term that was relevant to the case, and searched across the electronic information and, and got all this data back. The, the problem with doing that, and I know a lot of attorneys realize that, is you may not pick the right words. How many should you pick? Uh, what about when folks misspell words? You're going to miss all that stuff. 
uh, depending on the, the software that you're using and the, the capabilities of the search engine, it may actually grab every single variant of it. So uh, if you used, you know, air as a, as a word, is it going to get airplane uh, or anything that has air in it? Um, so that's really a, a problem when we're talking about keyword searches is how do you structure it? What's the language? Do you have to know programming uh, language in order to structure the, the term so that you're catching wild cards or uh, certain other uh, pieces of the words that, that you don't want, that you're doing a not phrase or within a certain amount of words. It just gets real complicated, and, and the, it's not really effective. I, I know the, the, the Trek uh, study, the text retrieval conference, basically came around and said, well, when you're using keyword searches, you're really only getting about 20% of what the responsive documents would be. So there's 80% you're leaving on the table. Um, but so it, it isn't really a, a good method, although it's really what folks feel comfortable in, in doing. That sort of grew up into conceptual searching, where now you're searching concepts, and the software is a little bit smarter. So if you search for car, it's getting automobile, it's getting vehicle, it might even get documents that have Toyota within them, things like that. So it, it kind of moved towards gathering information a little better than the keyword searches, at least that's what the hope was. I said, you know, that's, it's, it's getting more towards artificial intelligence. Well, at the end of the day, conceptual searching wasn't a heck of a lot better, still only about 20%. Yeah, 20 to 22, I think, was the figure that they right. ultimately came up with. And that was a su surprise, even to the people who were heavily involved with Trek. They didn't didn't think it would come out that they would be fundamentally the same. Um, you know, but, and I know you want to tell us what predictive coding is, but would you go through first the culling process and the denisting and the deduping and the dates and all that that you use sure. to get the, shrink it, the volume a little bit in the beginning before you get to the predictive coding? Yeah, before we get into all this stuff and, you know, why, why try to throw all this information at, at some sort of a, an engine to, to review this, this, do this document review and everything, you need to get rid of the stuff you know isn't going to be relevant or responsive at all. So denisting is where you take a, uh, there's a database of hash values, which are digital fingerprints of, of, of files, and you run that against your data set. And what it does is it extracts and identifies those files that are known. Uh, as an example, the word executable, uh, the Excel executable, um, all the DLLs that are used in, in Acrobat, uh, Windows and Macintosh you know, operating system files, those types of things. I, you, you know that that's not going to have any relevance at all to your case, so get rid of it uh, and get rid of it early. So in, in, in addition to that, some of the other things that you do are hopefully you're cooperating with opposing counsel. So now we're saying, okay, let's figure out the dates that we're, we're dealing with. Let's figure out which file types we're going to use. What about custodians? And get some sort of agreement to let the volume get reduced and, and agree on those, those terms and, and what kind of files and what kind of dates, et cetera. And then once you've done all that, you've got a much smaller set now that you can go and, uh, and, go and review, uh, run it through either your predictive coding engine or run your keyword searches or do whatever you want to do with it. But at the beginning stages, you want to actually have a lot less volume. So that's kind of the, 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 the culling piece of it, or at least part of the things that you want to do from a from a culling perspective and that, that reduction. 
So I think the first time, John, that we heard about predictive coding at all was from our, our buddy Craig Ball in 2005 when he did his first blog post. And, right, and right. he was kind of resistant to the whole predictive coding thing. Of course, he's become a convert since then. Um, <laughs> but but, but uh, if you can explain as simply as possible, because it is a complicated explanation, can you explain what predictive coding is? Because we started in 2010, we really started seeing it in force. And by 2012, we were fundamentally seeing the courts endorse it. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think first off, you know, and I think you'll agree with this, when we first heard the term predictive coding, I mean, that was a big buzz thing. And, you know, it was all the hot topic at, at legal tech and, you know, and, and tech show and all these other places, the conferences that were there, that this is the new, uh, the new sliced bread of e-discovery. The problem was, as, as you say, I don't think a lot of people understood what it is. And, and they use the term very loosely. So I, I just want to say that we're going to use the word predictive coding in this podcast, but understand that a lot of different vendors use different terminology, but essentially it's the same. Uh, effectively, it's, it's a computer system that's for electronic review, electronic file review, that is trying to approach artificial intelligence. It's trying to approach what a human being does. Uh, and so how do you do that? Well, you, you basically start with a, with a seed set, a training set, and you've got very, very experienced uh, attorneys that are reviewing that set within the software, and then they identify which ones, uh, which particular documents or sections or whatever are, are responsive to the particular case and, the, and the, uh, the facts of that case. So you've got these higher paid attorneys that are essentially trying to train the machine, to teach it, and then the machine learns. So if the, if the attorneys say, well, Document A, B, and C are all responsive, but D is not. Then the machine looks at those and goes, hmm, well, what's wrong with D? It sure looks the same. It's got a lot of the same words. Ah, maybe the custodian is different than the other three. So it, it understands. It learns from all those deals, and it, and it draws those relationships. And then you run that through, and then you throw some test data at it, and you see how effective was that training. Was it 50% accurate, 70%? 3%, whatever the number is, uh, and you say, okay, well, that didn't go so well, so maybe we need to train the machine some more. Uh, and you give it some more things to say that these are not responsive, these are, these aren't, whatever, uh, or whatever, however you want to tag them, however you want to, quote, code them. Uh, and then the machine learns from that again. So it's a, it's a wash, rinse, repeat cycle. You go through it, it's very iterative, until you, at some point, you get to the level that you're trying to get to. Maybe 50% is a level you want to get to. Maybe it's 70% accurate. Maybe it's 90. You know, obviously, the higher the accuracy, the more time it takes, the more data it takes, uh, and the more costly it is. But it's kind of the, the drive where you're, you're trying to get to it anyway. I think they've settled a lot of people use the statistic 80%. And, and some people are aghast and go, but that means 20% of the re responsive documents aren't <laughs> produced. And that may well be pr true. Yep. Um, you know, could you possibly miss a smoking gun? Possibly. I mean, it's possible. I mean, there's only so much you can do. There's a standard of reasonableness here. Uh, and we're trying to get to some sort of standard, but it's still much more accu accurate than human review. But if you if you think about the studies that they've done, though, with the keyword searches, you're only getting 
Right, so 80, precisely. 80 is better than 20. <laughs> 80 is a heck of a lot better than 20. Yeah. And actually, the statistics that they use to prove the validity of all this, they're very confusing. And this is one reason why <laughs> lawyers are so bad with predictive coding, because lawyers and math do not get along, and, and they have a terrible time understanding statistics. That's and, your and it's, voice of experience, right? <laughs> uh, that comes from, that, yes, yes, I am a lawyer. I hate math, and, and statistics boggle my mind. So I understand completely why my colleagues have such a hard time with it. So, <laughs> So I, I first started getting interested in this subject when I saw Watson on Jeopardy, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to bet on the humans. I wanted to bet on the humans so bad. <laughs> oh, Jennings I is just pretty smart. It. Yeah, <laughs> I just knew it was a bad bet, and I think everybody knew it was a bad bet. And fundamentally, Wat, Watson crushed the humans. Um, and I kind of knew then that any any reservations I ever had about predictive coding were probably gone. Um, the machines are simply faster and more accurate. It. They don't get sick. They don't come in hungover from a great night the night before. They don't have bad days when they fought with their spouse. They don't make stupid mistakes. They don't just get distracted. You know, they're not sleepy. What, whatever the problems are that that humans have, machines don't have them. So it really it really makes a lot of sense for the, the gold standard they used to say was to have human eyes on the documents. That was the gold standard. Well, unfortunately, today you want the machines to have have their eyes such as they are on the documents not the humans no that's very that's very true but uh, let's talk a little bit about cost of all this stuff too and and it, it's hard to to lump everybody together uh, into one bucket and say this is the cost model that they use because it's not consistent so it's important i think for the attorneys to understand that when you're going down this road and, and we're talking about predictive coding is how do they price it do they price it upon uh, volume of ingested data? Do they price it upon uh, number of pages, those types of things? Uh, so getting that number and getting that budget is, is very, very important, especially for the client, because they don't like these uh, a blank check, if you will, to, as, as they're going through their case on, on these things. But the, the numbers of savings, though, and, and the whole point of understanding the cost is where is that, that balance between should you be using predictive coding and those kinds of technologies? And is that actually going to save you money in the case? Where what we found is that they tend to be more for the larger cases and or very, very large volume of, of document cases. Um, because obviously large volume, it's going to take a lot of bodies to go and review that. The, the numbers that some folks will try to tell you is that, hey, we can save you, you know, 70% uh, off, off of your case by doing this. I think that's very, very high. Uh, I, I guess in, in general case, things that, that we've heard and the feedback that you and I have heard from folks is they're typically talking in the 15 to 30% range is, is what they're able to save when they're doing predictive coding. But understand that the cost to join could be pretty high. So if you've only got a, you know, a case that's a, a couple hundred thousand dollar uh, case in value, you're probably not going to go down this road. You're going to use other techniques. And we've uh, read that Judge Peck in particular has said, if you have 50,000 to 100,000 documents, that's probably the point of entry. And, and I would tend to agree with that. Would you, John? Uh, sure. Yeah, that, that's, that's a lot. Um, but understand that depending on the kind of, and to try to put that in perspective for folks, uh, when, when you say that number, well, what is that? They want to know how does that relate to number of gigabytes, right? Because we have machines today that computers themselves have at least 500 gig hard drives or a terabyte hard drive. Um, so it really depends on the, the type of documents that you're talking about, 
Uh, is it all email? Is it Word? Is it Excel? Is it PowerPoint things? Are they financial? Are they databases where you, you don't really know and you need to extract the, the numbers and information out of there? But, I mean, that's a good starting point, that number. Um, but it's, I think it's more, you know, the, the big, bigger the number, the, the more you're going to be going down this road. Well, the more you're going to save, that's for sure. Oh, sure. Well, why don't we yeah. take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is predictive coding for rookies. So... Who uses predictive coding, John? It, it, it looks to me from recent studies like it's about 40% of the large corporations, most of whom, of course, have big cases. But as you know, we had a local law firm here, and they had a what was for them. They're, they're kind of a small firm, but they had a really big case for them, um, not a giant case. And they decided that they would move to predictive coding, and they got a vendor, and they were miserable. Um, they didn't understand the system. There was a, a really a steep learning curve from their point of view. They didn't find the vendor helpful. And at the end of the day, to their horror, the client had ended up paying more money than if they had used standard document review. So their experience was not good. And we have heard this from a lot of people who are in small to mid firms that they've had some bad experiences. I think in the larger firms, they've established relationships with, with larger vendors and they probably know what they're doing at this point. But still in the small to mid market, we haven't found a lot of, of comfort. No, and that's true. Y you have a pretty good success story, though, John, right? Well, yeah, we had one, one story that we heard from where the, and, and we're, the whole point of predictive coding, or at least using machines, is that they're very fast. Um, now, some, some would claim that computers make mistakes a lot faster than humans do. But <laughs> the, the point is that you want to try to train them so they're not making mistakes and that they're making the right decisions much, much faster. And the, the story there is that there was a case where the, uh, the attorneys were getting involved in the case. They started to review the, the amount of information that they had there. And as they had 30 review attorneys going through this, this stuff cost at a cost of about $30,000 a day is what their run rate was. Uh, and I believe their, their deadline was about three weeks out, three or four weeks out. So, you know, typical of a lot of law firms, they wait till the last minute uh, to, to try to address these things. And after about a week into it, they went, holy moly, uh, there's no way that we're going to be able to complete this review and get to our deadline. So they went after predictive coding. The good news is that a lot of the work that they already did in their, in their other review platform was able to be ported over and reused uh, so they didn't have to start from square one. But the success story is that after they got the thing trained up to the percentages and the statistical numbers that you were talking about that they, were, that they found acceptable, that once they got that going, they were able to go from 30 attorneys down to 10 and their run rate was $30,000 previously, dropped to 17000 a day. 
So that's pretty significant. And that's a significant savings to the, to the client. But I think the most important piece of that success story is they made the deadline. So the computer was able to essentially replace bodies, run 24-7, because people don't work 24-7, uh, and be able to save them a significant amount of money uh, and, and meet that deadline. And I know all the folks that are in, in our neck of the woods here in the, the rocket docket of Eastern District of Virginia, they're really listening for that because they know they're not going to get a continuance <laughs> and they want that speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, it's a waste of time to pen a, a motion for a continuance in the rocket docket, that's for sure. But but the the problem with all that success on that side of it, on the predictive coding side, is there's a real dramatic negative effect on contract reviewers, which is, of course, how many young law students, particularly as they, they have come out of law school in this bad economy. You know, they were contract reviewers, many of them, but it's a shrinking field now. And, and you're finding that a lot of times they're getting 25 to $45 an hour for the duration of the review. So it's not full-time employment. It's a temporary gig. And now we're moving more toward the $25 an hour. And we even saw an ad in South Carolina where they were advertising for contract reviewers. They were only offering $8 an hour. How depressing is that? And, and then there was a law school in Alabama, Cumberland, who just announced a couple of weeks ago that it was going to start a document review center. Um, and we, we kind of chuckled wryly and said, well, I guess that's what they're doing to find their students, quote unquote, work. Yep. Oh, kind of yeah. sad, so, isn't it, John? Well, what's sad is I, I don't know what the minimum wage is. You know, is $8 cover even the minimum wage in some states? <laughs> Uh, it, it must. It must in South Carolina. <laughs> um, but it was sad. So let's talk a little bit about what the courts have said. And we're doing this really in a primitive way and kind of quickly given our time. But the landmark case, of course, is De Silva Moore. And in that case, in 2012, Magistrate Judge Andrew Peck from the Southern District of New York, that was the first court order endorsing the use of of predictive coding. In that case, both parties had actually agreed to use it, but they were arguing over the proper protocols and process. The plaintiffs finally sought to have Judge Peck removed from the case because he was a well-known advocate of predictive coding on the lecture circuit. An appellate court finally agreed with Peck's refusal to leave the case, and his decision in this uh, case... Case, which was a gender discrimination case, is, is very well-reasoned, and he suggested that predictive coding was one alternative based on certain factors, you know, where the parties agreed to it, where there was a large volume of documents to be reviewed, where it was the superior technology, where it provided for cost-effectiveness, and where it was uh, transparent and, of course, defensible. Now, following that, Virginia actually made the news in Loudoun County uh, because we ordered it used over the objection of another party, and that was by uh, Judge James Chamberlain in the circuit court. Um, He was the first state judge to issue an order approving the use of predictive coding in global aerospace v. Landau aviation. And again, that was 2012. And as a curious point of order, uh, that order was partially handwritten. And so it was kind of a shock to some folks who only work in federal court when they saw a state court order being partially handwritten, which is, of course, pretty common uh, in state courts. And we've had several federal courts say that the availability of predictive coding means, in some cases, that production requests are not unduly burdensome simply because we have predictive coding available. And one of my favorite cases was just recently in which a uh, in 2014, a federal tax court judge said it's up to, to the producer of the evidence to determine what search method to use. And actually, I... I like that. I liked his language a whole lot. 
And if I could find it, I'd read it. Here it is. Um, well, I have all these papers on my desk, as you know. Um, but th- this is really good language, and I think this is what you're going to hear uh, in the future. So this is quoting from the opinion. And although it is a proper role of the court to supervise the discovery process and intervene when it is abused by the parties, the court is not normally in the business of dictating to parties the process that they should use when responding to discovery. If our focus were on paper discovery, we would not be dictating to a party the manner in which it should review documents for responsiveness or privilege, such as whether that review should be done by a paralegal, a junior attorney, or a senior attorney. Yet that is, in essence, what the parties are asking this court to consider, whether document review should be done by humans or with the assistance of computers. Respondent fears an incomplete response to his discovery. If respondent believes that the ultimate discovery response is incomplete and can support that belief, he can file another motion to compel at that time. I think that's the direction we're going in, don't you, John? Oh yeah, for sure. It's you know they're not going to dictate, I guess, what technology you use. It's it's up to the parties to figure out what's most efficient for them and and get it there. And there are remedies afterwards if there's a problem. Yep. So why don't you take us on to something that could be used actually before predictive coding, with predictive coding, and that's language analytics and visual analytics. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it started out, I guess, even before predictive coding came out. And we saw some of these things in, like, as you recall, years ago, Sharon, in the, uh, like, Venn diagrams where they try to draw relationships to, to uh, different documents or people. So um, for, for you folks out there that, we're asleep in geometry class. Venn diagrams are overlapping circles, so the kind of the intersection of the, those overlaps is what uh, would be uh, relevant, at least. That was the early days of it. And then predictive coding came along, but then we're starting to hear these terms now: visual analytics and and language analytics coming back. And I think it's it stems from the fact that that we learn better by pictures. And, and more, I mean, as, as infants, as you know, our grandchildren, what's the first thing they look at as we're, we're reading to them? They're looking at those picture books, right? Uh, that, that's the things that they, they, they learn from that stands out of them. That's probably the reason that Instagram is so popular, too. Uh, but the visual analytics really has helped to identify uh, relationships uh, within the data. And where we first saw it, or at least where, where I'm very familiar with it, and we first saw it, at least in our digital forensics analysis, is tools that we use where you're analyzing email and you would have different uh, email addresses that would be shown on the screen with a line between the email addresses. And the line would represent the volume of conversation, uh, conversations, I guess, and, and volume of data that move, was moving back and forth between those two email addresses. So the really fat lines were the ones where you knew there was heavy conversation going on, and that was a visual for you. But as you looked at that, you might be concentrating on a particular individual's email, and you saw all these spokes coming out with these lines going to different email addresses that he communicated with. And then off in the corner, you'd see this very narrow line going to an address that you went, whoa, I don't know who that is. And maybe that's your smoking gun. So visually, you're able to see what, what some of these things are, are doing. Or, or as they can also be visual... When you're looking at not just email conversations, but the documents themselves, maybe the analytics is coming back to you and saying, uh, as you looked at all these Word documents that you have, son of a gun, you know, this, this Mary over there, she's the last person that's modified all of these documents in this, in this set within this one-week period. Maybe that's significant in your case. So it looks at maybe modifications. It looks at some of the metadata that's contained within the, the, the files that you have there 
to make that determination uh, and try to bubble those things up visually for you. The, the language analytics takes a look at the actual words that are being used and what kind of statements are, are, are there. And it kind of tries to turn it into uh, logical expressions and, and draw these relationships and says, you know, we've got all these documents here. We've got, I don't know, 150 of, of these things that are using the same terminology or the same kinds of phrases or those types of things. Maybe not using the exact same words, but it seems like the concepts are the same within them. And then it sort of tries to, to bring that out to the user in some visual form. Um, so that's kind of where the analytics are, are doing. And, and a lot of folks now they're kind of are using, as you say, the analytics up front. And this is a way to try to potentially increase, to create the seed set for, for uh, predictive coding, or even to, to help call down things, or at least to identify what might be, and, and, and custodians that maybe you weren't, you didn't collect for, or that are, but appear interesting because they're showing up in other areas. So I, I, it really is interesting, and it's a wonderful field. If, if you're involved in this, you certainly need to know a lot more than you can learn from a, a, a podcast like this one. You do certainly want to ask for references, but you know if you if you ask the vendor for references, the vendor is going to give you people who love them. Those are not the people <laughs> you need to talk to. You need to find the people who are not happy with the vendor. And the easiest way I can think of to do that, other than just you know random co- colleague conversations, is to get on a listserv and to ask people on the listserv that you belong to, uh, what their experience might have been, or if they know somebody else who's had experience, and get somebody who's more dispassionate um, and not in the pocket of the vendor. So I think that that's, that's better. And remember that vendors will always try to sell you that you know this is, this, is, <laughs> this is the holy grail. We come bearing the holy grail. And they want you to pay the price of the holy grail. Um, and as Craig Ball says, you know, predictive coding will become much more in use when the pricing becomes less extortionist. And it is, at the moment, pretty extortionist. So when it comes down some, it will be used in more cases. And I do think it's coming down, but perhaps a bit slower than we would like. But make sure you ask a whole lot of questions and make sure you understand what you're getting for the price, what volume is being included. And if this is volume that's being ingested, in other words, given to the machine, can you get rid of some of the crap before you give it to the machine? I mean, that's that's part of the the deal as well. And, and things like, does that volume include any compressed volume? Right. Or, or is the cost based upon uncompressed volume? I mean, there's all this kind of stuff because, you know, as you said, you need, you need to go, go to listservs or do whatever because, unfortunately, there's, there's no Yelp for, uh, for predictive coding. So... Uh, no, no, not exactly. <laughs> but but if you if you I think if you just Google questions to ask a predictive coding vendor, you're going to get a lot of help oh, there yeah, yeah. and a checklist. And so I would do something like that. Now it's it, it's certainly predictive coding is the future. I'm actually quite a fan of it. Um, not the pricing models necessarily, but I'm a fan of the technology. But if the tools are no longer in their infancy, they're at least still at toddler status. So I don't think we really know what this technology is going to become when it's fully matured. And the most common complaint we hear today is that the tools that it uses, um, sometimes they refer to predictive coding as the black box because it's not transparent. You can't understand the rationale by by which the software determines what is and is not responsive. So again, this goes back into this very heavy-duty statistical stuff and coding stuff, and it's beyond the can of most attorneys. I understand that. So, And also remember that vendors will license technology and then resell it under their own brand um, relative 
connectivity is a, a very common example of technology which is licensed by vendors, but you know they'll tell you afterwards that the underlying technology is is this. But just the fact that relativity is so good, of course, it's also somewhat expensive, and that that has to be wrapped into the pricing, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot to think about with with all of this, and 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 sometimes people who have licensed technology do not have in-depth knowledge of that technology, even if they're trying to sell it. So it's very complicated. It's it's a, a field that's well worth watching. It certainly is going to own the future. And I think I, I agree with uh, Judge Peck, who said that in uh, in five years from now, if you don't use predictive coding, you might find that if costs are awarded, that if you have used old style review as, or, as opposed to predictive coding, that you may not get the full extent of the cost you're asking for, because predictive coding may well have become a standard uh, by whatever name. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And I think that that's probably true. So what do you say, John? Have we wrapped it? I think we've uh, we've beat it up. We can talk about the future of uh, where we think electronic evidence is going to go for another podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, take us home, darling. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics, Technology, and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.